You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. This episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast is brought to you by CollegeCast. At CollegeCast, we empower student voices by helping college students develop their own 10-episode-long podcast series. Visit collegecastpodcast.com or follow at collegecastpods on Instagram or Twitter. Welcome to episode 142 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes. On this episode, we sat down with Dr. Mike Simpson of Graybeard Performance. Dr. Mike served in the U.S. military for 32 years and was a special forces operator. During the second half of his career in the military, Mike Simpson pursued a medical degree and served as a emergency medical physician while still in the military. As you'll hear on this episode, Dr. Mike's here to share with you his tips and advice about how to become a warrior athlete, how to reinvent yourself, and how to finally start working on your plan A rather than living out your plan B. Dr. Mike also has a book called Honed, which is available on Amazon. You can find a link to that down in the show notes. Here are the self-made strategies of Dr. Mike Simpson. I love, first of all, that you're very oriented in paving your own path and creating your own destiny, essentially. Now, is that something that you picked up from the military or is that something that that kind of evolved after your time in the military? Uh, I think it go. I mean, I think it's roots go back to my, my upbringing. Uh, and then, you know, in the, in the military, especially in the soft community, it is very much a meritocracy. So, you know, you're, you rise and fall, uh, on the strength of, of what you do on your own. You know, everything's done as a team, but as an individual, whether you're, whether or not you're going to progress is, is based on you and what you do. And there's a lot of, a lot of personal responsibility for that because of how it reflects not only on you, but kind of that, that fear that you might let the rest of the team down. And, and it, it nourishes back into the whole meritocracy because, you know, regardless of what your motivation is to be accountable, to be better, um, it makes you better as an individual, even if you're only doing it because I don't want to get made fun of, or I don't want to be the guy who let everybody else down. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because there's that, built in on inherent you're a part of the team but you Mm -hmm. need to be accountable for what you're doing and for what your roles and tasks are right i've got a whole chapter in in my book uh where i talk about uh about your tribe and why your tribe is important and basically it has to do with that is that the tribe will bring up a tribe member who's struggling when he needs to but also a tribe member will bring himself up because he doesn't want to let the tribe down so, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, did you pick that up more when you were in special forces or more just throughout your, because that's, that's a whole other level, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I did in, you know, in, in Ranger Battalion, you know, a Ranger squad is only as, as strong as it's, it's weakest member, a special forces, a team, especially because you deploy places and you know, you're, you're 12 dudes in a country somewhere where there might be no, literally no other Americans other than maybe some couple of people at a, at a consulate somewhere uh, a few hundred miles away. So you really have to depend on each other. And it's, you know, it's big boy rules are always in effect. It's, you know, nobody's going to micromanage you. So if, if you're the type of guy who, well, I, I decided to go downtown and, and drink last night instead of doing what I was supposed to be doing, and that affects you the next day, well, then you let everybody else down because no, everybody's busy doing their own thing. They don't have time to micromanage you. Right. Um, so, you know, very much personal accountability is, is drilled into you very early in your career that, that you're, you're going to be judged on your personal accountability. You know, do, do you do the right thing when nobody's watching that type of thing? Now, I, I really want to drill down just because I'm I'm a little bit of a of an enthusiast. I've never been in the military, but again, thank you for your service and and for what you do for for our freedoms. And obviously, that's very prevalent right now in the media with everything that's going on in Afghanistan. Yeah. But um, I was on Instagram the other day, and I happen to follow Jack Carr as well. And he, uh, I think he was quoted as saying, "Give me something along the lines." I'm butchering it a little bit, but something along the lines of. 
give me seven guys and I'll go in and get out all the Americans basically. Yeah. Which, which is kind of the special ops mindset to a degree, right? Special forces mindset. Yeah, it really is. It's, you know, the whole idea that, uh, and the thing is, is when you look at the conventional military, when you look at what we call the, the tooth to tail ratio of what it takes, you know, for, for one infantryman or for one infantry company to do their job, the support, behind that is just absolutely immense of course and really really only about 10 i i talked i talked this in my book too that only about 10 percent of the military are what you would consider to be warriors and the other 90 percent are enablers behind that but the sf mentality is hey you know what we can cut the tail you know the the dragon can't survive without the head but the dragon can survive without the tail mm-hmm. we cut the tail off and we kind of figure we will figure out on our own how to adjust for that you know, that's, you know, you're going to, you're going to be in charge of intelligence. You're going to be in charge of counterintelligence. you be in charge of sure that we have a roof over our heads. You're going to be in charge of, of training. You're going to be in charge of making sure all the weapons get there. So we're, we're very accustomed to that. And it, it carries over operationally in, into the, um, if you, if I only have seven guys, if I only have nine guys or 12 guys, I can move fast. I can eliminate red tape. You know, it's, if, Getting 150 guys in formation in the morning is, you know, we're waiting on somebody we're waiting. Right. On, but, but if it's seven guys all sleeping in one room, go outside and get in the vehicle right now. All right. Now, now we're going here now. And communication is easier. You know, communication is people. It's, it's kind of the forgotten aspect of, of warfare and strategy is communication is really paramount. And if you can just look at everybody in your whole maneuver unit in the eye crowded around one map, and go, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this, go. You know, it, that does make things a lot easier. So I, I don't think it it's it sounds amazing when people look at it on its face and oh my God, seven guys, or you know, it's foolhardy. That's something from a movie. But but in reality, seven individuals unencumbered by red tape, unencumbered by all of the inherent problems in having a larger maneuver unit could accomplish quite a bit. Right. Yeah. That makes it makes a ton of sense. The the efficiency level goes way up. Yeah. But that's yeah. in part because of the trust and the accountability. Right. Exactly. That's there. And now. So curiously, and maybe the listeners are curious about this, too. You talked a little bit about that accountability that you're mm-hmm. expecting. You gave that example of if you were up last night drinking, you're going to hurt the unit. Mm-hmm. So don't do that. To what yeah. extent does that happen? Because you, you guys are human, obviously. So yeah. I'm sure and emotions run high and yeah. things get really tough in times of high stress. So to what degree have you ever seen that? Ha- and obviously, you would you would leave any uh, parties yeah. un- unmentioned. But has that ever happened? And, and you, sure. what's how does that work? from yeah. an accountability perspective since you're not micromanaging? Yeah. So you're you're banished from the tribe is basically what happens. Wow. You know, that's, that's a good way to get a very bad reputation. And, uh, you know, somebody does something once you have maybe a younger guy comes to a team and, uh, his first time traveling somewhere, you know, maybe he's never even been off American soil before and he's pretty excited and you go someplace and there's all these interesting things to do. And, uh, and he's kind of drawn into that and he wants to participate in that. And the fact that, you know, maybe for the first time in his life, you know, he left his parents' house and then uh, went to basic training where you're obviously very micromanaged. You go to airborne school, you're very micromanaged. You're in other military schools at a lower rank, you're very micromanaged. And then you get somewhere where it's like, all right, big boy rules are in effect. Nobody's, nobody, there's no lights out. Nobody's telling you when to go to bed. We tell you when you have to be to work in the morning. You're the best judge of what you have to do to, to be there, you know, including, you know, what you eat, what you put in your body, how much sleep you get and all that. And guys who go off the rails and don't do, they're not good internal motivators or they're not good self-regulators. They get counseled and maybe told, Hey, this, this is, these are things you can do better. We've identified this, but if it, if it continues to be a pattern, sorry, you're a detriment to the tribe. So you're getting, you're going to get banished for the tribe and some will end up, uh, you'll see, see guys working up at group headquarters or working in the arms room or working somewhere else. Um, they'll be there for a while or they might get sent somewhere else entirely the, in extreme cases. And I, and I've unfortunately seen this, you know, guys had their special forces tab revoked and wow. uh, you're going to go back to the regular army where things are highly regulated and you will be told 
point blank, you know, every second of your day will be micromanaged for you because you've shown that you can perform at that level. But as soon as we give you free reign, you can't handle it. So, right. uh, yeah. In the, in the extreme cases, that's, that's what happens to those individuals. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Big stakes, big, big yeah. stakes. I think yeah. even just the, the threat of being removed from the tribe, as you said, is probably big stakes enough, right? Yeah. To really put your feet to the fire. Yeah. It's, uh, in, in the early days when I was in Ranger, Ranger Battalion, uh, this doesn't happen anymore. And it, and it only happened once when I was there very early on. Um, they did what was called a descrolling ceremony, which is they caught an individual was getting kicked out. They called him up to the front of, of the company and they ripped his Ranger wow. scroll off of his uniform and the entire company, we all turned our back. That had a tremendous impact on me as a young Ranger private that, wow, if I, if I don't measure up here, you know, this, this is how I'm going to be treated. Um, that was, uh, not, not appreciated well by the command once it got up higher and we're, and, uh, my company was told, uh, the leadership of my company was told never do anything like that again. We don't, we're, we're in a, in a kinder and gentler phase now. We don't do that. Um, but, uh, it certainly made an impact on me. Incredible. Really yeah. incredible. All right. So you've, you have reinvented yourself several times. You, you retired from the military as most people do. Uh, fortunately at a, at a younger age and, and now you, you got your doctorate in the military while you yes. were there. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. So did you practice at all? I did. So I, I did, my career was almost an even split. So I did 17 years as an operator, 17 years enlisted. And then, uh, and then the second, so, you know, I did 32 total. So, uh, you know, the second half was going to med school and then practicing as a physician. I did emergency medicine residency practice as an emergency medicine physician. I did six years assigned to the uh, Joint Medical Augmentation Unit, so deploying with them in an operational capacity, uh, providing direct support to the Tier 1 Special Mission Units, which was uh, probably no better job for an emergency medicine physician in the world. Yeah, that I, can, I would imagine you got pretty I can good imagine. experience yeah. pretty quickly, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. And a uh, great six years. Um, I decided to uh, hang up my spurs and turn my kid in with uh, a little over a year and a half or right at a year and a half left uh, in the army so that I would have time to get everything ready for that transition to civilian practice, to civilian life for me and for my family as well. And I, and I wanted a, a high degree of stability uh, during that last year and a half and then got out and initially just went straight into civilian practice as an EM physician, working for one of the local, uh, one of the local groups staffing uh, a level two trauma center. And it wasn't right for me for, for a lot of reasons. I didn't, um, oddly enough, al although, you know, I had always worked for somebody else in 32 years in the military, working for somebody else in the civilian world, um, when there wasn't that, Hey, what are we doing? What, what am I part of that's larger than myself question to be answered? Um, it just didn't feel the same. Because at, at the end, it was like kind of like Groundhog Day. It's like we're going to come in and we're going to see patients every day. And yes, I'm going to have some amazing interactions with people and I'm going to alleviate people's pain and save lives. And that's a great thing. But the larger mechanism seems only to be about, you know, are, are we moving people in and out of beds? Are we meeting all of our metrics? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the books look like? And I was pretty miserable. Uh, I was, and I was gaining weight. Again, you know, this is, this was another time post middle age that I was working shift work, so couldn't get in the workouts that I wanted, and I was not very happy. And I ended up going to a smaller, uh, a smaller hospital system for a while, and then ultimately going to part time. And I, I was fortunate enough; I, I picked up some jobs on the side. I did a little docu reality work. I worked for uh, as an instructor for a company called Sheepdog Response that I'm I don't work with formally anymore, but I'm still associated with. And I went to work as a medical director for a pre-hospital supply company and, and then started to kind of do the entrepreneurial thing on the side, um, standing up my own business, which kind of meandered through a couple of different uh, permeations and then eventually became Greybeard Performance. Hey, everyone. Tony Lopes, host of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. Thanks once again for listening to our show. 
As always, you can catch our show every Thursday, wherever you enjoy podcasts or on our YouTube channel. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button, like, rate, or review our episodes, or share this episode with a friend if you think they'd enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to the show. Which I think is the brilliant way to do it, and I really want to touch on that, but just out of personal interest, and I hope this doesn't bug the listeners too much, what was the docu-reality uh, projects that you got involved with? So I, uh, and actually I did the the first uh part of it that I did, I was actually still on active duty. I was, I was two months out from retirement and, and I took a month's leave, um, in order to do it. I did a, a show called, that was on history channel called hunting Hitler. Wow. And, uh, it, it was, a, it was a three, it had three seasons. I was on seasons two and season three. And, uh, the premise of the show was, um, there was no eyewitness to Hitler committing suicide, obviously, cause he and Ava Braun were the only people in the room. Uh, only one person saw the bodies and he was, and he was a Hitler loyalist. We know Hitler had doubles. And there was also some questions about the forensic evidence on the, the skull and the jawbone that now are, are actually, uh, in Moscow, uh, kept under lock and key. And questions about some DNA analysis that had been, this was raised actually in another documentary and that, that all started the, the train going for this docu reality series, which is, you know, is there, can we find definitive evidence one way or another that he either died in the bunker or that there's evidence of him being alive, being physically in another location after the bunker. And uh, knowing that so many fugitive Nazis got out in the, in the final days of the war, a lot of them ended up in, in South America. Would that have been possible for him as well? So basically by tracing the steps of all of the known associates uh, we were able to put together this docu-reality series that was uh, was entertaining. A lot of people, uh, I enjoyed making it. I think, uh, to me, I always tell people the the point, main point for me was not whether or not Hitler got out, because obviously whether he did or not, he'd be dead at this point right. anyway, because right. he'd be a hundred and something years old. But the fact that the ideology got out and that so many that espoused that ideology, so many that were in that close circle of trust uh, to Adolf Hitler, made it out and went on to live, uh, you know, fruitful lives and comfortable oh, yeah. lives before dying, oftentimes of natural causes or by misadventure, and were never brought to justice. And that they continued to perpetuate this uh, this hateful dogma that still persists to this day and, and is still out there. And and I think that is that I think is the most important thing that I think people should take away from that show. You know, it's. Hunting Hitler is a very catchy title to get people to tune in, but but in the end, uh, we even talked about it. Those of us who worked on this show, we said, you know, it almost would have been better if they just called it "Hunting Evil." Mm, interesting. Um, it's not as sexy, I guess. When it's when not you're yeah, creating it, the title, yeah. Right? And right. apparently, they say, "Well, we've already done focus groups and people," because then you got to <laughs> explain to people what that is. But do you see, they see the word Hitler and they want to tune right. in exactly. So uh, because people still still have an interest in that, you know how. How could somebody so evil rise to power? How could he maintain power? And uh, and ultimately, the world was robbed of justice because he, he, you know, no matter which story you believe, if you believe he took his life in the bunker, the world was robbed of justice. He never he never stood trial. He didn't he didn't get, he was never faced by his his accusers, the people that that he did so many terrible things to. Uh, and then if he got away, of course, you know that that would be even worse. Exactly. Wow. So how did you end up in that space to begin with? Just, just quickly. Uh, Tim Kennedy, uh, was on season one. Tim is a friend of mine. Uh, we're both, uh, former special forces operators, both from the seven special forces group. And although we never served together, we travel in a lot of the same circles. We knew a lot of the same people. Um, I had trained with him, uh, at the, at the same mixed martial arts gym for a while, not not getting there and sparring with them. Obviously it's not, <laughs> not at that level, but we, we trained in the same gym. Um, I work as a mixed martial arts fight physician and I'd worked fights where he had hit cornered or coached other individuals. And like I say, we had a, a lot of the same friends and we ended up corresponding. He came on my podcast uh, and we would speak on and off uh, about different things. There were a couple of times that uh, I had somebody applying to my, uh, uh, when I was chair of emergency medicine, I had somebody applying to the program who was also a former special forces person. And I wanted uh, to see who knew them, who could kind of vet their past. 
and uh, and Tim ended up being that individual. So oh, we'd, cool. we'd spoken before. And then uh, when they were going to make season three, they decided that uh, they really liked Tim and what Tim did, but they wanted another another kind of different version of Tim to be on another continent. So they wanted Tim doing the cool Tim stuff on one continent and and some other special ops guy doing cool stuff on another continent. And uh, Tim kind of put it out there into his network. And I said, uh, yeah, what's, you know, that's, I meet all the qualifications you're talking about. And I sent in a resume. He sent it to the network, he sent it to the production company who sent it to the network. Uh, it's a much longer story than we need to get into here, but the production company wanted me and uh, the network actually did not. <laughs> So, which which was kind of funny, um, but I, I always joke that, that what they wanted was a uh, a taller, younger, more handsome Mike Simpson, <laughs> um, and they weren't going to get that, so they got me instead. But uh, it it was uh, it was it was interesting. It was eye opening for a lot of reasons, not only because of the subject matter that we covered, but uh, it was interesting seeing what goes into something like a docu reality program and seeing behind the scenes and. Um, I, my wife says I've, I've ruined docu-reality for her forever because we'll, whenever, whenever we're watching anything now, we see people, somebody, they get out of a car. Yeah, they shot that six times. Like, and then, uh, when, when you see they're doing an interview and they do a close up, they're like, yeah, he had to ask that question three or four times, <laughs> <laughs> you know, explaining all that and kind of ruining the behind the scenes stuff uh, for my wife. But I also went on later and I did a, a documentary that's uh, on Amazon called Normandy 44 and the Battle for France, which I did with uh, my good friend James Holland, who was also on Hunting Hitler with me. And really good times. That was really interesting, tracing the operational aspect of the D-Day invasion and the entire 77-day campaign uh, to take Normandy back, uh, which is really good. If people who had a problem with Hunting Hitler because of, you know, they're kind of questionable whether it was history or not, um, they should watch Normandy 44 because it's extremely accurate uh, oh. down, down to literally everything, uh, that we put into in, for that docu reality that I did with uh, bright button productions out of the UK. Great team. Awesome. Yeah. And thank you for sharing all that. That's really more just personal. Cause I, uh, I dabble a little bit in production as well. So, uh, yeah. it was interesting to me. So yeah, the, the going back to Greybeard performance and what you said, I think that that is the smartest way in my opinion, and we'll, we'll get your opinion in a second. That is the smartest way, if you're listening to this, to get started in a new area or to start a new venture or to dabble in entrepreneurship. It's to do it in your extra time. Um, right. And you obviously had a lot going on. And are, I would imagine you have great advice about how, fit it, how to fit it into your busy schedule. So for you, how did you start the process of Greybeard, and were you at the time still practicing emergency medicine? And is that kind of when you started it? Walk us through the whole build up, the inception. Yeah, actually, what 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 helped me to start Greybeard uh, was COVID, and the re the reason being is I was working as a I was working as a locums physician, which means I don't have a specific hospital that uh, I'm on the schedule. You know, every month the schedule comes out, and I'm on so many days a month. Um, I had a few different hospitals kind of scattered around the state that I was credentialed at. And when they would need someone, um, I would get an email, Hey, we have X number of days in June. We have, you know, however many days in August, uh, what, you know, we have nights, we have evenings, we have mornings, you know, what, what can you cover? And I would work in that capacity. And when COVID hit, not long after, we weren't very far into COVID at all, um, that those shifts completely dried up. And the reason being is people were doing what they were supposed to, which is you know, we were telling people, look, if you don't have a real emergency, don't come to the emergency room. So they weren't. And what uh, we could do a whole show just on this topic, but what most people don't realize is at any given time, only about half the people in an emergency room probably need to be in an emergency room. Uh, probably about half. Um, that's you can make an argument that it goes up to maybe about seventy-five percent, but definitely no higher than seventy-five percent. And the census in emergency rooms across the country just 
dropped precipitously to the point that they were seeing so few patients that places that were triple and double coverage, so two or three physicians per shift, were going to one physician a shift. Um, so they just didn't have. They're not. If you're not, and if you're not seeing patients, you're not generating what are called RVUs, um, which means just keep them. By the time you keep the lights on and everything else you're kind of running out of money. So, you know, people had to cut back on shifts. And obviously as a locums physician, I was the first to get cut, which is fine. Um, again, because I had, I was working, uh, for a company called Persis Medical as their medical director at the time. So I had steady income. I also have my, uh, my military pension as well. So the bills are paid, not an issue for me. Um, typically, my role as medical director for Persis would entail a lot of traveling to trade shows, to conferences. I do a, a lot of international travel, go to Israel typically a couple times a year. And that was curtailed because of COVID. So I had time on my hands and I just started, that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I've, I've talked about having my own life and lifestyle brand. I've talked about having my own line of supplements. Now's the time to do it. Because now I wake up in the morning, I, I I don't have to worry about I'm driving somewhere later on today to go work a shift. I wake up, spend two to three hours at my computer dealing with emails and Zoom conferences. I go to the gym, I come back and I have, and then in the afternoon, I answer any emails from the emails I generated in the morning, but I'm still having some leftover time every day. So that's when I started to dedicate. I took all of the supplement formulations that I had already come up with and started reaching out to companies to see who could put those in capsule form for me. Started looking at what else I wanted to do with a life and lifestyle brand. And of course, uh, I'm a big advocate of, of martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular. So I decided, well, I'm going to have to sell jiu-jitsu gear. There's, there's just no way around it. So I decided to sell geese and rash awesome. guards. Um, so eventually, I want the Graybeard Performance line, like I say, to be a complete life and lifestyle brand. So that's where you go for for blogs, for vlogs, for advice, for tutorials, um, to link up uh, possibly with gyms in your area, uh, to buy workout equipment, uh, to get workout programs. Like everybody else, I want to have my own app at some point, you know, that has workout programs and, and diet and nutrition and, and everything kind of all rolled into one. Uh, so that's the ultimate goal. But you know, for the most part now, it's, it's jujitsu gear and supplements, you know, out of which I have a, a total planned of seven, seven SKUs, seven different supplements in my line of supplements. And I have two up and running right now that have been immensely popular and very well received. And uh, they're designed for guys like me. I'm 55 years old and uh, I still go into the gym and hit it hard. I still go into, uh, into martial arts classes two to three times a week and spar at 100%. And uh, I want to keep kicking ass into my 60s and beyond. And I, I recognize that there are guys out there like me that want to do that too. So that's who these supplements are for. And, and that's who, also who I wrote the book for. Uh, my book, Honed, is now, uh, as of today, it's number one on in the men's health category on Amazon. Yeah, and we'll post a link to that. So if you're listening to this, there'll be a link down in the show notes where you can go and click to go right to Dr. Mike Simpson's book check that out make sure you uh you support what he's doing really cool so for anyone who's listening to this what's the advice that you would give to them if they're super busy they're in a profession and they're thinking about side hustling into something else mm -hmm. what what would be your three best practices let's say what do you need to focus on yeah um three best best practices for for side hustling um First and foremost, I would say uh, you have more time than you think you do, okay? You, you think you don't have time, and if you look at how much time you spend going through the Netflix menu complaining that there's nothing on Netflix and that, you know, the, that the next season of Peaky Blinders isn't out yet, you cut out that time, you cut them out the time you're wasting on your phone, on social media, uh, cut out all this other wasted time, you're going to find out you really do have time. So this, so that's number one. Um, number two, I would say you need to think, you need to think of this in, in, in this mindset. And this was the mindset that really helped me kind of flip it is 
you're living your plan B right now, whether you know it or not, you're living what I like to call your plan B. Okay. Um, think about when you were 18, 19 years old, and maybe you had a dream that, um, I'm going to be an actor or I'm going to, I'm going to own my own bagel shop or I'm going to own my own bar or whatever it might be. And you realize that that was probably not a good thing to do right out of the gate, right? So you went and you got a college education or you got formal training and you entered the business world and that's what you've been doing. But that's really your plan B. Your plan A was that thing that you wanted to do all along. Your plan A is still within reach. You've got plan B locked down. So don't be afraid to go into plan A because you know you can fall back on plan B. It's right there for you. Plan B is paying your health insurance. Plan B is paying your mortgage. That's good. Don't completely let go of plan B. But let's start looking at plan A again. Let's dust it off. Why? What was it about plan A that excited you? You know, is what you're doing now in plan B, are you, are you singing along with the radio driving into work each day? Probably not. You know, are you, are you happier going in or coming home? You know, do they, are you looking at the clock to get out the moment it clicks over or are you looking at your watch and going, Oh, I can't believe I stayed an extra hour and a half because I'm enjoying myself so much. You want to enjoy for me, getting the website up and running, getting my, my supplements formulated, reading the emails from people that are taking my supplements and they're getting benefit, writing my book, uh, getting feedback when I, when I put, uh, preliminary copies of the book out there for people to read and getting their comments. And now that the, you know, the book is up and running and in sales, get, seeing the response, seeing how many people want it, how many people are buying it, seeing the reviews and people talking about how it's going to benefit them and they're incorporating their into their life. I'm, I'm happy to get up. I'm psyched every morning when I get up now and I open my computer and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, who, whose life did I touch in the last 24 hours that I help them be a better version of themselves. And I'm, I'm excited about that. So you want to be excited about it. So look at your plan A and don't throw away your plan B. You're doing great at it. You know, keep the plan B, but let's start looking at, at plan A again. Uh, and, and you can live it. And then I would say that, you know, the best time, the third thing I would say is the best time to do it is 10 years ago. The second best time to do it is right now. And the worst time to do it is I'm going to wait till tomorrow. So start right now. Just start tonight. Start writing notes on what you can do to make the, make that a reality. You know, whether it's being an entrepreneur, whether it's being a stand-up comedian, whether it's, uh, you know, I'm finally going to get uh, a motorcycle and ride cross country because I always wanted to do it. Whatever that dream is, start looking at making it a reality right now. And once you make that a priority in your life, you're going to find ways, time and money, two biggest things that I always get, mostly about exercise, but really about everything, time and money. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. You do. All right. You have more time than you realize. Even after you sleep, drive to work, work, brush your teeth, make dinner, go to the grocery store, everything. You have more time than you realize. You're just wasting time. You have more money than you realize too. If you go through, go through your bills and look at how many I'm always surprised quarterly. I make it a point to go through my bills and I realize why, am, why am I paying for that? I don't use that. I don't need that. I can do away with, I can do away with that membership. I can do away with this membership. Um, you'd be surprised that, that once you make it a priority and obviously, you know, your roof over your head and, you know, clothes on your kids, that has to be a higher priority. But once you start to make it a priority, you can absolutely do so. And uh, don't let anybody tell you you can't. Yeah, that's brilliant advice, I think. And one of the things there that that I think you hit on very sharply is the time and the money situation, right? We're not saying you can't watch Peaky Blinders when it comes out or whatever your yeah, favorite show is. Because I love Peaky yeah, Blinders. Curb your enthusiasm, <laughs> whatever it is you like, you know, you watch, you can sit down and watch that, but you need mm -hmm. to be strategic about yeah. how you're you're using your time and you do mm -hmm. need to make sure that even if it's a half an hour a day or an hour a day mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you're putting that towards as an investment into mm -hmm. whatever you're trying to get to. to that, back to that plan A. I love the way you put that. So you've... Yeah. Go the, ahead. Sorry. 
No, I was going to say that it's when, when I was writing the book and, uh, this was, I actually wrote half of another book that will probably get published someday. And I, I ran into a wall when it came to that. And Jason Piccolo, a good friend of mine, who's written a lot of books told me, he said, Mike, you just, you got to come home every day and you either need to set a time. I'm going to write for an hour or I'm going to write X number of words. And you just have to commit to that. And he goes, and honestly, you might go back a couple days later and say, everything I did on that night is crap and I got to delete it. But you're setting the pattern and you're, you're figuring out, like Thomas Edison said, you're figuring out what doesn't work, right? So you just have to have the discipline to sit down. You don't, you don't feel motivated, doesn't matter. You don't feel, you know, your muse isn't there, doesn't matter. Just sit down and write it. And that's in, in writing, honed finding your edge as a man over 40 the book the book that i ultimately did publish uh when i reached when i was in a wall on a specific chapter i said well you know what i'm just not going to write tonight i'm not going to write that chapter i'm going to write on the next chapter and then something will come to me and i would i would have there was a couple chapters i had like two-thirds of the way done wrote four more chapters then went back and finished them so you just you have to set that pattern you have to set the priority and uh and really monitor your mindset about it probably more than anything. So the book Honed is all about reinventing yourself after the age of 40, but I'm sure that a lot of what's in it is applicable to an audience of any age, quite frankly, because if you're looking at even college students today coming out of college or in college during the pandemic, you have to find ways to differentiate yourself. You have to mm -hmm. find ways in an increasing democratized and globalized economy to really stand out in unique ways. Just submitting mm -hmm. your resume on, you know, whatever website to, to employers or just applying on whatever formal way, they're getting thousands of resumes. They're, mm -hmm. It's just not going to jump out at them if it just has a list of whatever your historic accomplishments may or may not be. So doing things that help you strategically get around hurdles is what's most advantageous for most people. So again, kind of going back to this, and if it's similar to what you just described, we can skip it and move on. But what are your, what's your, your big key piece of advice on how to reinvent yourself after the age of 40 or just how to reinvent yourself in general? Yeah, the, to me, uh, the big thing, and, and of course, and I put this in the book and, and most of what I deal with in the book is, is specifically health and wellness. But I don't want people, you know, if they say, well, I've got that covered or that's not something I'm interested in. I just want to know how to make a million dollars. You should read the book anyway. The reason being, uh, number one, health is your wealth. Okay. And it's the, 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 it's the thing that's always going to be the most important, whether you realize it or not. Number two, the, the people that do the things in the book that I described when it comes to health and wellness have success in other parts of their life because it's a direct reflection of your health, right? Your, your healthy outlook on you as a person, on you and your physicality and your mentality, that reflects into your job, into your relationships, into everything. Um, so I think the most important thing to re when reinventing yourself, and this is especially true, I would say for people over 40, but also true for anybody. I would say this to a, a middle-aged, a middle-aged, middle-school-aged uh, kid who's listening to this is don't listen to what society says. Don't listen to what somebody tells you is normal. Uh, because usually they're not even talking about normal. They're talking about average and normal. And at, first of all, normal is probably even shouldn't be a real word, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty ugly word, you know, normal. What do we consider? What, what did people consider normal in the 1950s? You know, if those things were still considered normal now, uh, just think of the society that we would live in. Right. Right. And everything <laughs> that's you mentioned to Edison earlier, everything that's ever been invented has been invented by people who thought abnormally. Right. Yes. That's how it happens and, is you have and, to think in a different way. And oftentimes those individuals were condemned and at times yeah, excommunicated absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and shunned. Yeah. Right. Because they 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 flipped the bird to normalcy and they said, I, I'm going to do it. So. Don't, don't look at what's normal, what's acceptable. You know, there's 
there's a great line, and one of my all-time favorite movies is Tombstone. And uh, Wyatt Earp, Kurt Russell, says to Val Kilmer, Doc Holliday, I just want a normal life, Doc. And Doc Holliday says, there's no such thing as a normal life. There's just life. And you need to accept that. That, you know, what the the vision that you might have been brought up with of what what is a normal life, if that's not what you want or and it's not what you have, don't worry about it. It's, you know, ha- have what you want um, within reason, of course, but don't listen to people that, to tell you what's normal. And that that will hold you back because if you're if you're looking at if, if I would have listened to what's normal for me, uh, you know, physicality wise, you know, at age 40. I was supposed to, I was supposed to get fat. Okay. Which, which I did a little bit cause I was in a residency, but I was supposed to get fat and accept it. Right. And get slow and just accept the fact that I'm not as fast as I used to be. I'm not as strong as I used to be, but this is just what comes with middle age. This is normal for middle age. And I refused to accept that. And I said, no, I can perform at, as a high-level warrior athlete, just like I did when I was when I was a special forces operator, and I might not be quite as fast or quite as strong, but I can still do. There's still a lot of things that I can do, and I don't, you know, it's it's normal or it's average to gain weight and uh, and buy a smoker, you know, and and bar weekend and play golf every weekend. These are all the normal slash average things. And I didn't want to do any of those things. So I don't, because I don't, I don't listen to people. I don't let society tell me what's normal for me. And again, that's a, I think normal is a pretty ugly word. So I think it should be shunned. Love that. So, um, I, I was going to ask you next, do you talk about your warrior athlete lifestyle in your book? And in mm-hmm. general, you, you just touched on that. So what is that lifestyle sort of from a 30,000 foot view perspective? So when, when we're talking about being a warrior athlete and you can, you know, I, I write that as a hyphenated term, but you can be a warrior athlete. You can be a warrior academic. You can be a warrior entrepreneur, warrior hyphen, whatever you want, you know, put that after it. And what it means when you put warrior hyphen in front of whatever that is, is it means that that's your focus, that that's when you get up every day, that's your number one priority. And when I'm talking about that in terms of being a warrior athlete, you know, I say to people that there's two, two common ways that people look at, at health and fitness is it's a chore, but I got to do it. It's like eating your broccoli um, or it's a hobby. And, you know, it's just something I dabble in. You know, yeah, it's, I get to the gym a few times a week and, you know, I get on the machine and I do the thing. Well, that's not how a warrior looks at anything. Okay, a warrior doesn't see it as as a chore. He sees it as duty, right? He sees it as, as an obligation, but an obligation that he's willing, he or she is willing to undertake for the betterment of themselves, right? Self-improvement is a warrior's focus each and every day. Being a better version of themselves, being a better warrior athlete, being a better warrior entrepreneur, a better warrior teacher, a better warrior dad, right? The warrior always wants to be better. Miyamoto Musashi said it best. Um, today is our victory over ourself of yesterday. Tomorrow is our victory over lesser men. And you need to look at each day. Today is my victory. Today, when I was in the gym, it was my victory over the same endurance routine I did last Friday. So it was my victory. It was improving my PR on that. So it was my victory over that. Look at anything in life that you really want to embrace as not a chore and not as a hobby, but as a warrior that you're going to get up each day. And this is my mission. This is my focus. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better at painting pottery. I'm going to be better at scrapbooking, whatever. I'm going to be better at it than I was a week ago. That's how a warrior looks at it. And that's, that's how I think people should live their lives. Absolutely love that. And I am definitely, I mean, you've inspired me just in the two seconds that you were going through that. It's brilliant. I think it's a a fantastic way to reshape and repurpose the way that you're looking at things and change your mindset, like you said. Because if you're looking at it from that perspective, that it is, this is my duty to get better, you are going to grow for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You can't, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, I think of 
when somebody looks at something as a chore, I think of all the memes, all the eye rolling memes out there, you know, whether it's the, the Ben Affleck meme or the, or the Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Jr. meme. Uh, yeah, so I got to do this again. You know, it's, you know, it's, you know what, if you've got stuff like that in your life, get it out of your life. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you either, more. Either come to grips with it or get it out of your life. You know, guess what? I don't, you know, I use broccoli as an example. I don't like broccoli. So guess what? I don't eat broccoli. Sometimes I do, but for the most part, I don't, I don't voluntarily eat broccoli because I don't like broccoli and I eat a lot of healthy food, but broccoli is usually not in there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. Um, I actually do happen to like broccoli by the way, and spinach. So, uh, Good for it works, you. Out, I it love works spinach. out well, but, but then again, I, I, I do I melt love some cheese on the broccoli. So maybe that's cheating yeah, a little yeah, bit. I, yeah. You love cheese. <laughs> I love cheese and hot sauce. So I'll, I'll use hot right. sauce when cheese is unavailable. So yeah. yeah. I love spinach literally in all its forms. Yeah, me too. And and I didn't start liking uh I, I never I always hated cauliflower. Oh, that's funny. And the and the two things that made me like cauliflower is uh traveling to Israel and having uh grilled cauliflower uh with hummus. That that changed my outlook wow. on cauliflower. Uh, and, uh, also, uh, the fact that you can make cauliflower mashed potatoes and cauliflower pizza mm, crust yeah. completely changed my outlook on cauliflower. And I actually, uh, recently came around to Brussels sprouts as well. I, a huge fan of Brussels sprouts, but again, you know, roasted olive oil roast. Yep. Yeah, that's the way to go. Get, get some real, like some caramelization in there, get some flavor yeah. in there. That's, that's the way to do it. See, the army ruined Brussels sprouts to, for me because they were flavorless green balls, you know, that, that were just like slimy. Right. Steamed. And nobody wants to eat that. Yeah. So, but yeah, absolutely. Ro roasted Brussels sprouts with olive oil oh, and some seasoning. The best. Man, the best. I'll eat a whole plate sure. of those. And that's yeah. another thing, actually. They're not a sponsor of the show or anything like that, but uh, Mountain Rose <laughs> Herbs. If you're, I, I'm, oh, I'm big yeah. into cooking. I have a big green egg. I have a smoker. If you go on my Instagram, it's it's mostly my Belgian Malinois and, and my smoker. That's pretty much the majority nice. of my Instagram. But uh, I, I love that. And uh, Mountain Rose Herbs, really high quality spices, like you said. Even if it's just like uh, peppercorns, if they're really high mm -hmm. quality, they're full of flavor. And yeah. it changes dishes. If you if you season things, you'll yeah. be surprised how much how much better they can taste. So, uh, Oddly enough, peppercorns are actually really good for you, too. They're a high source of bioprin. Which is really good for you. What's what's bioprin for those who don't uh, know? Bioprin is the I, I trade. It's it's uh it's the trade name. It's you see it in a lot of supplements as kind of a uh, as an additive because it increases uptake, but it helps with digestion uh, and helps uh, liver function as well. Oh, cool! That's and great. and it has some anti-inflammatory properties. Awesome. Yeah, really yeah. good. Well, there you go. Got got a little bit of a cooking tips. We got some seasoning <laughs> tips on here. That's awesome. All right, last question is. Because you were an army ranger, I'm really curious about this, just this kind of fanboying a little bit, but um, what's the coolest mission or or the most memorable mission, whatever it is for you, that you went on while you were in the ranger battalion? I, I say that because in the movies, whether it's Black Hawk Down or, or mm -hmm. other films, rangers are rangers, right? They're the yeah. battalion that gets called in when everything else has collapsed and somebody right. needs to get saved or, or something important needs to be done. You send in the Rangers usually, right? So for you as a Ranger, what was the, the most memorable mission in your time? Um, my two most memorable. So I, so I was, I was a Ranger assigned to the Ranger battalion in the 1980s. So it was a little bit different time. So, uh, as a Ranger, when I was in, in the Ranger battalion, the most, the, probably the coolest thing that I ever did is we, um, we deployed to Honduras, and uh, at the time, a lot of crazy stuff was going on with Nicaragua, and we ended up uh, on the border, air quotes, uh, of Nicaragua doing some operations there, and that that was pretty cool. Um, but, I mean, nothing, you know, nothing that made front page news or anything like that. Um, in the global war on terror, although I wasn't uh, in my capacity assigned to JSOC, I worked with the Rangers quite a bit. Um, I had two missions that, that kind of stick out in my head, and uh, one of one of which uh, was some guys got into trouble, and we ended up going in and, and, get, and getting them out. I can't really go into a whole lot more detail than that. <laughs> um, that that was pretty cool. Um, there was uh, another one. Uh, anytime you're you're taking taking a, a high level bad guy out of play. 
that's something that's pretty exciting. And I got to be involved in a couple of missions that involved that, you know, involved, you know, name recognition individuals that, that, you know, even, even people who don't follow the news closely, if I were to say their names, they'd probably say, yeah, that sounds familiar and Google it. Um, I talk about one mission specifically, uh, actually in the introductory chapter to my book. Um, and that one was interesting, uh, and exciting for me, not only because it was kind of a cul- my last deployment and my culmination of deployment, but it was a chance for me to look at myself at, at the time, a 48 year old and say, you know, where am I, where am I physically mental? You know, am I physically sharp, mentally sharp? Do I still have that a warrior's edge? And, uh, and can I still do this? And am, am I an asset and not a liability when I go out with the Rangers? And, uh, went out on a few different missions and, and got, got into some firefights and uh, was really happy with, you know, the, the fact that I felt that I was an asset, not a liability. And the feedback that I got from the Rangers around me was that I was an asset and not a liability. And uh, to me, that was kind of proof to me that uh, in, in the way I was approaching my lifestyle and, and living my life that uh, again, you know, it's all about not listening to what's normal, certainly not normal, for a 48-year-old board-certified physician to go out and get into firefights with the Rangers, right? That's not normal. Um, but I'm glad I had an opportunity. I feel very fortunate for that. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Graybeardperformance.com, which we will put in the show notes. Other than that, if people want to follow you or check out what you're doing, check out a copy of your book, which we'll also link to in the show notes. What are the best ways to reach out? Uh, best ways to find me, you can co- actually contact me through the Graybeard site. So that's one way there's there's uh, a way to send me a message right there on the site. Um, or you can follow me on social media. Uh, Graybeard Performance has its own Instagram account. And I also have my Instagram account, which is Dr. Mike Simpson, D-R-M-I-K-E-S-I-M-P-S-O-N. Uh, and that's, uh, I have a, uh, Graybeard has a Facebook too, but I seem to get the most traction over on Instagram. That seems to be where everybody is nowadays. Oh, and also I have a podcast called the, um, it's uh, mind of the warrior, which is on, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google play and, and all the other platforms. Cool. We'll link to that as well. Thanks very much, Dr. Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>